0: We are today coming to the finale of our series in sketches. This is the last of 16, um, 16 talks, 1 Samuel 31 and 2 Samuel 1. I'm going to put those two chapters together today as we do this final um, final part in, well not David's life, but the final part in this section of David's life we've been looking at. The section from which he was uh, promised to be king, age 17, and we're now going to meet him age 30, we think, where actually he's just about to be king and we'll kind of bring the series to a conclusion. And if you've been with us, you'll know, um, or if you're familiar with the Bible, you'll know that Israel is fighting a battle with the Philistines. David's not involved in that, but Saul, the current king, certainly is. Saul, we know, is terrified about the results of it. He finds out in pretty curious ways um, that the battle's not going to go well, and sure enough, it goes disastrously. Uh, 1 Samuel 31, let me summarize it for you, uh, shows Israel to be losing the battle. Uh, soldiers have being killed left, right and center. The Philistines are pressing in. Saul knows the end is coming and he also knows that in the ancient culture of warfare that the, uh, the culture would have been for the victors to um, treat him treat him horribly in a bid to humiliate him and so kind of in fear Saul asks his armor-bearer to take his life for him the armor-bearer refuses um, because he's not going to touch the king in that way and Saul in this kind of awful tragic end to a tragic life takes his own life rather than have it taken by the Philistines we discover also that that's three of Saul's four sons, including Jonathan, are also killed on the battlefield. Uh, the following day, the Philistines do as they would in the ancient world, come to inspect the dead on the battlefield. They find Saul, they cut his head off, they display his head at one of their towns and take his armor to one of their temples in a, in a bid to humiliate him and Israel and demonstrate their victory, kind of the things that Saul had feared really. Now David's not involved in the battle, because he's been fighting his own battle, as Paul was telling us last week, against the Amalekites. But he's obviously keen to hear news of this battle, and 2 Samuel 1 tells us that he does hear news uh, by an Amalekite, somebody who came across the scene. And this Amalekite uh, makes a grave error because he's very keen to win David's favor. And so he thinks by telling David, not only that Saul is dead, but that he killed Saul, he will kind of somehow curry David's favor as the future king. Okay, so we're going to pick up the story in 2 Samuel chapter 1 and verse 11, and uh, Seamus and Joe are bringing a bit of the words on the screen behind me, which is brilliant. So it says this, then hearing about the news of Saul and Jonathan's death and the the defeat by the Philistines, David took hold of his clothes and tore them. And so did all the men who were with him. And they mourned and wept and, and fasted until evening for Saul and for Jonathan, his son, and for the people of the Lord and for the house of Israel because they had fallen by the sword. And David said to the young man who told him, where do you come from? And he answered, I am a son of a sojourner and a Malachite. David said to him, how is it you were not afraid to put out your hand to destroy the Lord's anointed? Because this guy's claimed that he killed Saul. Then David called one of the young men and said, go, execute him. And he struck him down so that he died. And David said to him, your blood be on your head, for your own mouth has testified against you, saying, I have killed the Lord's anointed. And David lamented with his lamentation over Saul and Jonathan, his son. And he said it should be taught to the people of Judah. Behold, it is written in the book of Jasher, which is a non-biblical ancient text. He said, this is David's song of lament that he wrote. Your glory, O Israel, is slain on your high places, How the mighty have fallen, tell it not in Gath, publish it not in the streets of Ashkelon, lest the daughters of the Philistines rejoice, lest the daughters of the uncircumcised exult. You mountains of Gilboa, let there be no dew or rain upon you, nor fields of offerings, for there the shield of the mighty was defiled, the shield of Saul, not anointed with oil. From the blood of the slain, from the fat of the mighty, the bow of Jonathan turned not back, and the sword of Saul returned not empty, Oh, Saul and Jonathan, beloved and lovely. In life and death, they were not divided. They were swifter than eagles. They were stronger than lions. You daughters of Israel, weep over Saul, who clothed you luxuriously in scarlet, who put ornaments of gold on your apparel. How the mighty have fallen in the midst of the battle. (coughs) Jonathan lies slain on your high places. I'm distressed for you, my brother Jonathan. Very pleasant have you been to me. Your love to me was extraordinary, surpassing the love of women. How the mighty have fallen and the weapons of war perished. You might think a bit of a sad way for us to finish a a 16-week series, but I think we're going to see some interesting things, because in this, the culmination of our series, and of David's 13-year wait to be king, I think we see this. We see that when it comes to the crunch when it comes to the crunch, David is a man who knows who and what he is living for. And it seems that his primary ambition in life is that the name of God be glorified. That the, the, the name of God be on display. That the glory of God be on display. And that's the, the main question for us this morning. If you're a Christian this morning, is it yours? Is it your primary ambition We've just Kind of been singing about it. I didn't know we were going to sing that song. But is that your primary ambition? I can put it like this. Over and above all the good things in life that we value and that we desire and that we appreciate. Is your primary ambition that God be glorified through you and even through all things? And whether you're a Christian or not this morning. I'd add a second question that I think would help us. Which is this. What is it that you want the most in life? And can it hold the weight of that expectation or that trust? What is it that you want the most in life? And supplementary question, can it really hold the, the weight, the level of that kind of expectation and trust? You see, David gets the thing that he has been most wanting in many ways. The thing that he's been waiting for, trusting God for, enduring all kinds of suffering for, the crown of Israel, he gets that. Saul is dead, his persecutor. And the crown of Israel, well, Judah initially, and then a few years later, the whole of Israel, the crown that was promised to him is almost his. So his persecutor is no more, and the crown he's waited for 13 years is almost on his head. He has all that he's been dreaming of and wanting. But these two things that he gets, Saul's death and the crown, actually reveal that his greatest passion is not for those things, it's for the glory of God. It's for God's name. Let me just show you that across kind of three steps. Number one, the primacy of the glory of God. Two, the rivals that we face to the glory of God being our primary ambition and three, the solution that we have to it. I've had a busy week, so forgive me that the PowerPoint is not as complete as it might be. That's me and not these wonderful guys serving us so well over there. The primacy of the glory of God, the rivals that we face, and the uh, solution to it. Number one, the primacy of the glory of God. See, when I read this passage, my kind of first reaction is, why and how does David react like this to Saul's death? Why does he write words like this? If that was me, I, maybe I might kind of offer some grudging, well, he wasn't such a bad guy after all type of stuff, but this kind of sense of grief and, and, the, uh, uh, and, and desperation as for Saul's passing and, and exalting of his qualities, where does he get the resources to do that and why? He's got every reason to be delighted at Saul's death. You know, David served Saul with nothing but loyalty, commitment, courage and, and skill. And yet Saul turned on him and chased him down and hunted him like an animal for years, trying to kill him. So David's got every reason to do anything but grieve and fast and sing songs of lament. And yet he does all of those, those things. 2 Samuel chapter 1, verse 12 says, They mourned and wept and fasted until evening for Jonathan and Saul. That's, that's deep grief. Deep grief. And admittedly, the ancient world and other parts of the world today are much better than we are at publicly expressing their grief. But still, there's something far more than just cultural um, things taking place. And then he writes this song, this song of lament for both of them, which he teaches to the tribe of Judah. That's David's tribe. He deliberately teaches a song grieving and praising Saul to the people in Israel who are probably most keen to see Saul dead and David alive and David ready to be king and he chooses to extol Saul's virtues and makes no mention of all of the faults that we know Saul had why now there's some ancient cultural things going on, the tradition of, of, of lamenting, um, dead kings, and the tradition that lasts today, that all of us in our culture now, when someone sadly passes away, we immediately, we quite reasonably and rightly tend to extol their virtues, don't we? That's just kind of part of the human condition, it seems. But there's something more than just, a, as I say, a, a cultural thing taking place. Back again to that, that verse 12, which I think is so key in, in chapter 1 and 2 Samuel. says, they mourned and wept and fasted until evening for Saul and for Jonathan his son, and for the people of the Lord and for the house of Israel, because they had fallen by the sword. For David, this is, this is about the Lord. And we know that because in verse 23, at the beginning of this song of lament, David writes these words, your glory, O Israel, is slain on your high places. So for David, this is about the glory of God. It's not about his rival being extinguished. It's about the fact that the king is supposed to embody and represent the glory of God. And the king is not only dead, but is humiliated. His arm is in a pagan temple and his head's hanging on a spike somewhere. And the king was there to represent the glory of God to people, to show them what God was like. And that's what grieves and mourns David. He can't bear the thought of the name of God being kind of stomped into the battlefield. It says later on that the, the, um, the armor has gone to the, gone to the temple and, and the Philistines, their, their, their women are singing songs of joy and exulting in their pagan gods over and above the one true God. That's what is causing David particular pain. Yes, he's lost his friend in Jonathan. Yes, he's lost the man that he tried to love and serve so well. But fundamentally, David's primary ambition is for the glory of God to be known. And it's not when the people of God are being defeated and their king has been killed and humiliated. David's got hold of something about The heart of God, which is this. He is primarily interested in his glory being known and shown and displayed and worshipped and loved. Now we talk here a lot about the love that God has for us, for you. And he does. And it's wonderful. And he loves you in ways that we just can't express. And we talk also about the the practical application that this wonderful book, the Bible, gives us. It it shows us how to live. It shows how life works. But overarching the, as it were, application to our lives and the wonder of God's love for us and for you, overarching that is God's primary ambition that his glory be known. The Bible is not a book about how much God loves you. The Bible is a book about how much God is about his glory. An expression of that is his love for us and his desire to draw people into his glory. Now, Some of you might think, come on, God's love for us is the main thing, is it not? Well, let me just, I hope, evidence this to you that God is primarily for God. I'm going to read to you some texts. And those of you who've got a bit of a competitive juice might try and scribble them all down really fast. Um, But I'm going to read quite a few to you, but just to demonstrate a broader point, but they'll all be on the life group notes later on. Here we go. Isaiah 43 says that God created people for his glory. Isaiah 49 says that he called Israel for his glory. Uh, Psalm 106 says that he rescued Egypt from Israel for his glory. Romans 9 says that he raised up Pharaoh to show his power and glory. One Samuel 12, a few chapters before we started our series, says that God didn't cast away His people for the glory of His name. John chapter seven, I'm going to keep going. Verse 18 says, "Jesus glorifies the Father in all." Matthew 5:16, 1 Peter 2: 12 says that we are to do good works for His glory. John 14 says that God answers prayers that he may be glorified. John 12 and 17, Jesus says that he endures suffering for the glory of God. John 16, 14 says that the ministry of the Holy Spirit is, is for the glory of God. Four more, five more. 1 Peter 4 says that we are to serve in a way that will glorify God. You can probably finish the sentence, I would imagine, soon. 2 Thessalonians 1, Jesus says that he will come again for the glory of God. John chapter seventeen. Jesus says that his ultimate aim is that we will glorify him when we see him. Habakkuk two says that the earth will be filled with the knowledge of the glory of God, like waters covering the sea. And finally, Revelation twenty one twenty three says that when Jesus Christ returns to make all things new, the new heavens and the earth, the glory of the God, the glory of God will replace the sun. There'll be no need for a sun as such. Because the glory of God will do all that needs to be done. God's primary ambition is that his glory be made known. But we face a challenge to that. And maybe even as I've been speaking, we kind of might feel a bit kind of discombobulated by the idea of God being primarily about his glory more than about ours. Because then about you, I, I quite like my glory to be in operation and God to kind of aim his, um, aim his guns at me, as it were. That's a rubbish phrase, you know what I mean? God's going to kind of aim his resources and his ambitions towards me. <laughs> Romans chapter 1 is really helpful. Uh, a thousand years after David lived, Paul, the apostle Paul is writing to one of the first churches in Rome in the first century, and he tells us really helpfully, I think, just just why we find it hard to make our lives about the glory of God. And uh, these verses should appear on the screen as well, thank you. Romans 1 verse 22, Paul writes this, and he's talking about people who ultimately reject God in some way. He says, claiming to be wise, they become fools and exchanged the glory of the immortal God for images resembling mortal man and birds and animals and creeping things. Therefore, God gave them up in the lust of their hearts to impurity, to the dishonoring of their bodies among themselves, because they exchanged, there's that word again, the truth about God for a lie and worshiped and served the creature rather than the creator who is blessed forever. See, often people can have a conception about Christianity, or about the church, that when it comes to sin, about the church, that Christians are ambitious to stop people sinning, to stop people doing bad things, to make it clear what we can't do. And it's about not doing the, not doing the wrong things. Paul is giving us a far more in-depth, nuanced explanation of what's really behind sin. He says it's this, it's people have the tendency to swap centering their lives on the glory of God and instead they exchange the glory of God and center their lives on the apparent glory of created things. That so rather than uh, making our lives about the glory of the creator, we center our lives on the apparent glory of created things. So he's getting behind what we do and he's saying even the good things in our lives that we treasure and that we aspire to do or to be or to have or to protect. We have a tendency as humans to, to do a subtle exchange in our hearts. As Christians, we can do this. We can sing the songs, we can, we can read the scriptures. we can pray the prayers, we can, we can lift our hands, but we can have a subtle exchange that takes place in the heart where our fundamental ambition is not for the glory of God, it's for the apparent glory of created things, maybe ourselves, or stuff, or things, or other people. Because Paul knows that human beings will worship. We will worship in different ways. Nick was alluding to all things sport earlier on, but it's a a great example of the human desire, the male desire particularly, to, to worship to lift our hands and to adore something spectacular. There's loads of other examples we can give of how we want to worship. The uh, philosopher David Foster Wallace, he who, who wasn't a Christian um, and he too, he took his own life in fact. Um, and he, he, as a philosopher, who wrestled with life and, and ultimately found that, that life kind of got him. He came, he, he saw some fascinating things in his struggles and his wrestles. And David Foster Wallace said, in the day-to-day trenches of adult life, there is no such thing as atheism. There's no such thing as not worshipping. Everybody worships. The only choice we get is, is what to worship. And that's written by somebody who, who rejected the, the Christian faith, but he's captured something of the human condition that we seek a glory to give our lives to, something beyond ourselves. Let me just put it in a sort of different context, perhaps, um, we're doing Q and R after the service each Sunday, and we'll do it again today for anyone that wants to ask questions about what you've experienced in the service this morning, or about the Christian faith in general. And we were doing it uh, last week, and um, Flick Blank, who many of you will know, has kind of been part of this community for a little while with with, with Glenn. And I've got permission I should add to share this story. Um, she was ever so kind of authentic in, how, in sharing something of her story of why she's come to a place of exploring and considering faith, and she was talking about the, uh, the 30th birthday celebration that she and, uh, and Glenn had uh, a couple of years ago, I think, her 30th birthday, and they planned this amazing trip to America, and it, it not only sounded amazing, it clearly was amazing. They went to LA, and to Vegas, and San Francisco, so it was the trip of a lifetime. And yet, in her, in her own words, she says that when we got home, quote, I just felt totally empty. She says, I just felt a sense of what's next What's the point? And I think what she was tapping into was that sense of, and these are now more my words than hers, but she knows that I'm sharing this. I think she was tapping in that sense of, I've, I've given myself to, the, to a certain glory of a creative thing, great holiday, great hotel, great people, great weather, and it just didn't satisfy. In fact, it, it kind of left me feeling pretty empty at the end of it. And all of us, the, Paul is saying in Romans, have a tendency to make an exchange Christians as much as as those that haven't come to faith in sometimes. It's just that for us often it's more subtle. Because we can look like the glory of God is our be all and end all. And actually a little exchange has taken place and really what we're aspiring to most of all is a created thing. A person or a a career or a sense of achievement and success and value or whatever it might be. Why am I telling you that? Because I've stepped into that exchange many times. And often it's not until a few weeks, months, even years go past that you realize, oh, an exchange has taken place in my heart. And yet for David, as much as he wrestled and struggled and got things wrong, as well as getting things spectacularly right, as much as he points us towards what Jesus is ultimately like, David seems to have got hold and kept hold of the centrality of the glory of God because when this amazing thing happens, Saul is dead and the crown is almost his. He neither triumphs in Saul's death nor seizes the crown. It's amazing. I didn't actually put it in the passage I should have done, but in the next chapter of 2 Samuel, chapter 2, verse 1, David says, or, or the, text, the author says, that David then, then consulted with God. Should I go up to whichever town it is? Should I, should I go and get the crown yet? He's still waiting. It's remarkable. It's like, if I was David, it's, it's there, it's mine. And yet something in him is God. Is, is, this, is this the time? Is, is this the right time now because your glory is the main thing here not me having a crown and for me that is so encouraging that making my life about the glory of god frees me up to stop making my life about me it's good news and it gives me the resources that david seemed to have found even to handle the complexity of an enemy dying and, and how to handle that and how do you, And yet David has the resources to be honoring and, and kind and forgiving and not putting himself first. And this amazing thing, which is an amazing thing, the crown, is not the biggest thing. And so David can be, yep, I, I know I'm an anointed king, but God, not before your time. I've waited 13 years, I can, I can wait a bit longer. Oh, don't you want to have that, that degree of poise and peace? Not be grasping for things, not be threatened when things are being taken away. It's good news to center our lives on the glory of God rather than the glory of anything else. David had found a greater thing even than the good thing that happened. And it was a good thing in many ways that Saul passed away because he'd been tormenting David and he was leading Israel disastrously. It's a good thing that the crown came David's way but he found a way, he'd found a greater thing than even the good thing that he was eager for. So how are we doing with this? Where are we at with this? What are the exchanges that can or have taken place in the quiet places of our hearts? And nobody else will know, but God knows. God knows. I I know that we know that, but it's just worth, he sees everything. And that's not terrifying, well, that's not terrifying in the sense that he just observes and glares and exposes us. He's a good, perfect father who sees everything. So He looks on everything, on our hearts, with love and devotion and a desire to draw us into what he knows is best for us, which is that we center our lives on him and not us. It's the most loving thing that he can do. For the eternal creator God, to invite you into a relationship of love, where his glory is your primary concern, is the best thing he can do for you listen why do you get angry sometimes illogically so because you've made something about you why do you react so strongly maybe at work when something happens doesn't go your way because it's about you but if the glory of God is the primary ambition even the worst of things can still be towards that end somebody can be a soul to you in the workplace thoroughly unpleasant but if the glory of God is the primary ambition, that can still work to those ends, do you see? But if your glory is the primary ambition, that, that person, that soul, is deeply threatening. And depending whether you're a fight or flight person, you either crush them or run from them. So it frees us up to live lives of freedom. It's God's blessing, it's God's goodness to us to make our lives about Him. And so what do we do then if there has been an exchange taking place or that, that we become aware of the possibility of exchange taking place? Well, one, one thing I suppose is, is repentance. That's really appropriate to say to God, I'm, I'm sorry, I, I sense I've done what humans have done for centuries and I've made it about a creative thing and not about you. That's appropriate. God meets us in that with forgiveness and blessing. But don't stay there. It's really important. And, and if you have not a Christian, when you come to faith, that's the first thing that you do. Express repentance. You might even, you might even speak Romans 1 back to God. I'm, I'm sorry, God. You are the eternal, holy, glorious, eternal God. And rather than making my life about you, I've made my life about other things. And I've caused pain and brokenness as a result. So repentance is really important. For the for the for the person coming to faith and the person already of faith, but don't stay there. What do I mean by that? Well, uh, I said I had a busy week at the beginning of this because um, I didn't plan my diary very well. Usually, when I Go away and do some training, or or something. I, I make sure somebody else is preaching on the Sunday. Uh, but I didn't do that this time, uh, and so I went away this week uh, to have some training. Guy called Andrew Wilson, many of you know, is doing some some training on biblical theology. Some quite intense training over a number of days, and it's a bit of a freebie because he needs, a, he needs it's being filmed. He needs a small audience to make it kind of a lively thing, and you get to go for free and have kind of a bit of Q and A with probably the, the sharpest mind in our sort of network of churches at the moment. So it's a great opportunity to go and do, and I, and I need to train and grow as I've already expressed at the beginning of, the, of this morning. But it meant that this sermon hasn't had as much time maybe as it normally would. And so on Tuesday, all I knew was, God, I, I want to show people the glory of God. I want to help people see the glory of God. Is not just your primary ambition, but it is good news for us. I don't want to leave people in repentance, although that's important we get there. I want to show them the glory, as it were. And, uh, and the, the initial part of the training was kind of going through some I wouldn't say it was dry, but, you know, kind of the historicity, you know, really getting in some of the detail of the Old Testament text and historicity and things. It, wasn't, it was interesting because I'm a historian, but I wouldn't say that I was kind of necessarily being bowled over by the glory of God. But there was a wonderful moment. Where I really felt God spoke to me, and, and I hope for you as well, when Andrew opened up Isaiah 6. And I want to I read it to you as a sort of third text of this morning and uh, kind of land here or help us to to land here. So Isaiah 6 is written in the 8th century BC, a couple of hundred years after David was around. Isaiah was God's prophet, God's voice, God's mouthpiece. And uh, I think in 740 BC, Isaiah gets to see like a vision of God, a picture of God. And he writes these words for us in Isaiah 6, verse 1. In the year that King Uzziah died, I saw the Lord sitting upon uh, a throne, high and lifted up, The whole earth is full of his glory. And the foundations of the threshold shook at the voice of him who called. And the house was filled with smoke. And I said, woe is me. I am lost. I'm a man of unclean lips. And I have in the midst of people of unclean lips. For my eyes have seen the king, the lord of hosts. Then one of the seraphim flew to me, having in his hand a burning coal that he had taken with tongs from the altar. <clears throat> And he touched my mouth and said, Behold, this has touched your lips. Your guilt is taken away, and your sin atoned for. Now there's loads you could say about that passage. You could like, do a series on that passage. There's vision that Isaiah sees. But one thing I'll just leave you with, as it were. It's about the seraphim. <laughs> I don't know much about seraphim. You probably don't know either. Angelic beings can cause us all kinds of questions, but... The Bible's clear, and God's clear that there are angelic beings in the spiritual world who are perfect and sinless and worship God in the Bible, occasionally pop up to do remarkable things for God, including winning battles and destroying enemies. So these seraphim are perfect, sinless, spiritual beings and capable of extraordinary godly power. Not to be worshipped, but they are to be that And we were just looking at the fact that they've got three pairs of wings, it seems. Six wings, these extraordinary beings. One pair of them are to cover their feet, kind of a, I think, to do with sort of modesty, culturally. One pair of their wings are to fly, and one pair of their (laughs) wings uh, are to cover their face. I was like, oh my goodness, this being, who can do extraordinary things, and who is sinless. Needs, I don't know why I'm getting emotional, I always do this, and it puts us off a game. This being, needs, is created with a pair of wings specifically designed to cover its eyes from seeing the glory of God. That just blew me away. How holy, how glorious must God be? if a seraphim needs to stop looking sometimes, because they just can't behold God. It just like, as you can see, just kind of broke me. I thought, what on earth would I ever, why would I ever exchange? I'm sorry, this is gonna happen. Why would I ever exchange the glory of a created thing for the glory of God? These beings, they're crying out, holy, holy, holy. They deliberately say it three times to make the repetition of this extraordinary God. It's like, this is ridiculous. God is so holy, so glorious. And yet I sometimes think the eternal glorious God is here to serve my (laughs) needs or to make his ambitions about me. And I really didn't think I was going to get all emotional. I'm so sorry if it's unhelpful because I don't want to detract from... (laughs) the glory of God. C.S. Lewis, can't do a sermon without quoting him, says uh, this, it's indeed, if we consider the unblushing promises of reward, and the staggering nature of the rewards promised in the Gospels, it would seem that our Lord finds our desires not too strong, but too weak, We are half-hearted creatures, he says, fooling about with drink and sex and ambition when infinite joy is offered us. (laughs) Like an ignorant child who wants to go on making mud pies in a slum because he cannot imagine what is meant by the offer of a holiday. (laughs) And uh, as ever, C.S. Lewis knows stuff, uh, and he helps us to see that it's not about just saying, oh, I, I mustn't stop doing that thing. I mustn't stop making my life about the glory of being married or of having kids or of uh, being successful in the workplace. I must stop doing that. C.S. Lewis is saying that's not what it's about ultimately. It's about recognizing that we're built for worship and pleasure and joy, and if we only look around in the things in front of us, we're missing out on the glory above us. That's where joy and pleasure for eternity waits for us. And he says, get your eyes off little mud pies and come and take a trip by the seaside and swim in an ocean that goes for miles. That's the glory of God compared to exchanging glory for created things. So I just want to lead us, I suppose, in in a couple of things. One would be uh, repentance, I think. And then the second thing would be to pursue the glory of God. I'm so grateful that God answered my prayers on Tuesday. (laughs) And I think he answered our prayers for for this as well. Although I didn't expect it to turn like this. I didn't know what to say. I said, God, I can't speak about the glory of God unless you show me. A bit like Moses did in the and Moses said, I'm not going anywhere. I can't lead people unless you show me your glory. I, I guess I was doing that in a small way. And God answered that. So I don't only want us to repent, if that's appropriate for, for some of us. I also want us to, to pursue, to look at the glory of God. To do what C.S. Lewis says and, and get our eyes off whatever the mud pies in our life might be. However nice and muddy <laughs> they might look. And to, and to look up at the glory of God. And I know Jamie wants to help us to, to lead us in worship to do that. So maybe the band could help us to respond. And I'll just do two things. I'll lead us in a prayer of, of repentance. And then uh, Jamie's going to and the band are going to help us to, to worship and to see God. And if you sense God is speaking to us, then come and share that with, with uh, Anna and myself. And then at the end of the service, we'll also share communion together. As we always do on the first of the month. So should we should we stand just as a action to respond uh, I, I I don't want to be exposing cuz God's not exposing so just don't sense that we need to do anything other than just create a moment for you and God but if you know that an exchange has happened or is happening can I encourage you to come to the cross and to seize eagerly the results of it, which is the forgiveness of all things for the sake of abundant life. So, Lord God, I, I pray for any of us, me and others who have at times, often made with good intentions or, or things that are in themselves good, but we've made them the main thing. There's been an exchange and our lives have become less about the glory of God and more about the apparent glory of a created thing or person or objective. And we say, God, that's not why you made us, and therefore we're sorry for that. And we just want to eagerly seize the, the wonder of your forgiveness. And I pray that your forgiveness, as it does its wonderful work now, would unveil eyes by the power of your spirit as to what is available to us. I pray it would make us men and women like David who can handle both the biggest gifts and the biggest threats because our ultimate ambition is for your glory. And I also pray that as we worship now that you would keep speaking to us and that you in different ways would show us the wonder of something of what Isaiah saw because you're the same God yesterday, today and forever. In fact, the the forgiveness that Isaiah experienced of a coal being brought to his lips, that moment of pain was only a fraction, Jesus, of what you experienced. A coal didn't just burn your lips. Death crushed you on our behalf. That we would not only know forgiveness, but that we would enter into the kingdom of God, that we would be able to see and experience and worship and make our lives about your glory. Thank you, God, for that. And we pray, show us your glory and may we worship you in these moments.